Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The New York Amsterdam News. The New York Times. The Harvard Review Online. The Springfield, Missouri News Leader. The Los Angeles Times. Kirkus Reviews. And I'm going to get things started off with a reading from the military-oriented newspaper Stars and Stripes and its Stripes.com website. The title is Fort Polk Renamed Fort Johnson in Honor of Black World War I Hero. It was written by Rose Thayer and published June 13, 2023. With the striking of an anvil to symbolize the forging of the warrior spirit, the home of the Army's Joint Readiness Training Center in Louisiana was officially renamed Tuesday from Fort Polk to Fort Johnson. At the heart of the warrior spirit lies courage, unwavering bravery in the face of danger head-on, to stand firm in the face of adversity and to protect the freedoms we hold dear, said Brigadier General David Gardner, the post commander. If Sergeant William Henry Johnson doesn't exemplify the warrior spirit in its purest form, then I don't know what does. Born in North Carolina, Johnson moved to New York as a teenager and enlisted in the Army in June 1917. He was assigned to the 369th Infantry Regiment, an all-black New York National Guard unit known as the Harlem Hellfighters. Army General Daniel Hokinson, chief of the National Guard Bureau, attended Tuesday's ceremony and said Johnson fought in World War I with the National Guard the first war in which the organization was officially called the National Guard and was considered a professional military force. He thanked the commission tasked with renaming the Army's nine installations for choosing a member of the National Guard for recognition. Fort Johnson is named for a citizen and a soldier, Hokinson said. It is a tribute to both his personal heroism with sacrifices made by so many to defend freedom. On May 14, 1918, Johnson was deployed to France, where his unit was attached to a French unit in the Argonne Forest. At about 2 a.m., Johnson was standing guard when German forces attacked. With his fellow guard incapacitated, he sounded the alarm and attacked the enemy alone. He threw his entire supply of grenades, then fired his rifle until his bullets ran out. He charged the enemy, swinging his rifle as a club, and when he observed two Germans about to carry his wounded comrade away for interrogation, Johnson abandoned his rifle and instead drew his bolo knife, fighting off the raiders in close quarters and pushing them back from the position, Gardner said. Johnson became the first American privates to receive the Croix de Guerre, France's highest military honor. However, in the United States, black veterans did not receive equal recognition. Though Johnson was paraded through New York City as a hero after the war, his disability pension was denied and he died of his war wounds in 1929. After his death, Johnson was awarded the Purple Heart in 1996, the Distinguished Service Cross in 2002, and the Medal of Honor in 2015. He is buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. The Army did not establish Camp Polk in central Louisiana until January 1941. The post, which has always been used to train troops, closed for four years between World War II and the Korean War. In 1993, the Army moved the Joint Readiness Training Center from Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, to the installation. Fort Johnson has a base population of about 32,000 and an average transient daily population of about 5,000 troops, according to the base. Aside from its training mission, 
Fort Johnson is also home to the 3rd Brigade Combat Team of the 10th Mountain Division. It is the seventh of nine Army installations to change its name in recent months to shed homage to a Confederate general. Fort Pickett, Virginia, Fort Rucker, Alabama, Fort Lee, Virginia, Fort Hood, Texas, Fort Benning, Georgia, and Fort Bragg, North Carolina have been renamed Fort Barfoot, Fort Novacell, Fort Greg Adams, Fort Cavazos, Fort Moore, and Fort Liberty, respectively. Fort Gordon in Georgia will become Fort Eisenhower in October. A date has yet to be scheduled for the change of Fort A.P. Hill in Virginia to Fort Walker. Congress mandated the name changes in the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act, its annual Pentagon Policy and Spending Priorities Bill. It estimated the effort would cost some $62.5 million to complete. Outside of Army base names, the effort includes the renaming of Confederate-linked items and names at dozens of other bases and Navy ships. Earlier this year, the Louisiana National Guard announced it would rename the state-owned Camp Beauregard in Pineville to the Louisiana National Guard Training Center Pineville. The formal change will occur later this year. Gartner closed Tuesday's ceremony by pledging to continue the mission of training at Fort Johnson just as it has for the past 80 years. The warrior spirit that burned within Sergeant William Henry Johnson now inspires generations of soldiers. Soldiers who now call JRTC in Fort Johnson home. And soldiers who will continue to come here from all over the nation and all the world to train, he said. That was the article, Fort Polk renamed Fort Johnson in honor of Black World War I hero. It was written by Rose Thayer, published June 13, 2023, and it appeared at Stars and Stripes newspaper's stripes.com website. The next reading I have is out of southwestern Missouri. The title is, Preservation of Neosho School Attended by George Washington Carver Gets National Grant. It was written by Claudette Riley and appeared in the Springfield, Missouri, News Leader newspaper. It was published on June 13, 2023. For decades, historians have worked to preserve and restore the Neosho School, where the prominent Missouri-born scientist George Washington Carver and hundreds of other black children were educated. The project, largely reliant on donations, received a boost Tuesday with a $70,000 grant from the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund, a program of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The 1872 Neosho Colored School, listed on the National Register of Historic Places, was one of 30 projects selected this year from among 660 proposals. It was the only recipient in Missouri. Lawana Hollert-Moore, a historic preservation expert and storyteller with the National Fund, said there is an urgent need to protect, preserve, and interpret these valuable American assets. The two-room, 380-square-foot wooden structure on Young Street opened in 1872, just seven years after the end of the Civil War, and remained in use until 1891. It is a rare surviving example of a Reconstruction-era African-American school. What makes it special is that it was the first school attended by black agricultural scientist and inventor George Washington Carver, Holland Moore told the news leader. It was important to us because for far too long, sites of African-American history such as this have been overlooked and undervalued, and we believe that African-American historic sites deserve to be thoughtfully stewarded 
and invested in and cared for in the same level of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. By elevating the school and other historically significant sites, Holland Morris said lessons of the past live on. Our grants provide the support and the capital that is necessary to ensure that these African-American sites are preserved and recognized and the story behind is told to a broader audience, she said. This makes such a transformational difference for so many of these sites. Since 2018, the Action Fund has supported 242 grantee projects through its investment of $20 million. Past recipients from Missouri include the Satchel Page House and the Sarah Rector Mansion in Kansas City and The Ville, a historic African-American neighborhood in St. Louis. Brent Legs, executive director of the African-American Cultural Action Fund, said, The history embodied in these places are emblematic of generational aspirations for freedom, the pursuit of education, a need for beauty and architecture, and joys of social life and community bonds. Carver was born in Diamond, home of the 240-acre George Washington Carver National Monument, established in 1943, but he was not allowed to enroll in school there. To pursue an education, he moved to Neosho and into the home of Andrew and Mariah Watkins in 1876. Neosho at the time had a black population of 130. Carver is a noted inventor, scientist, humanitarian, and an educator who taught for 47 years at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. He captured his memory of the school in the nearby home and drawings, depicting the school's gable roof and small interior chimney. Often referred to as the Carver Schoolhouse, the structure became a private home in the 1890s and remained that way for a century. The wooden structure became fragile and was slated for demolition when historians led a fight to save the school. Over the decades, the building had been renovated and added on to, but many of the original materials remained intact. The horizontal board waste coating, plastered walls and ceilings, window framing, and early or original flooring were uncovered. Lana Henry, president of the Carver Birthplace Association, said it took decades to get the structure added to the National Register. Other work included removing non-historic add-ons to the building, stabilizing the structure, and rehabilitating the exterior. The next step is rehabilitation of the interior of the schoolhouse, Henry said. The grant application described the school as a valued, tangible historic resource directly connected with Carver's life. To interpret the significance of the site, the Association and the National Park Service completed a 180-page study called Thirst for Knowledge, Historic Context for the 1872 Neosho Colored School, that included data about slavery in Missouri, the impact of major civil rights laws, and related historical accounts. One example from 1894 showed the racial volatility of the times. A Neosho man named Hewlett Hayden, who likely attended the school a few years before Carver, was arrested for allegedly shooting a man near Monette, Missouri. On the way to jail, a lynch mob overpowered the men guarding Hayden and hung the man from a telephone pole near the tracks. A newspaper account noted 50 to 100 in the lynching party and none were disguised, indicating little fear of reprisal for such violence. The study also described the impact Andrew and Mariah Watkins had on Carver. In exchange for a place to stay, Carver helped Aunt Mariah, a former slave, with chores. She reportedly taught him about herbal medicine and domestic skills. There are some photographs and images that go along with the story. 
One is a current photograph of the school. It has a stone foundation. There's a door and two windows on the front. And from this angle, there is one window on the side. And there's a stone chimney coming out of the roof. There is a sign outside of the school that says, 1872 Neosho Colored School, the first school attended by George Washington Carver. This schoolhouse served the African-American community from 1872 to 1894. The caption to the photograph reads, the 1872 Neosho Colored School listed on the National Register of Historic Places is significant for its association with George Washington Carver, as well as its important role in providing education for African Americans in the Neosho community. There is a photograph of a young George Washington Carver wearing a suit and bow tie. There is a picture of the school in the mid-1900s after it had been turned into a house. And there are two men standing outside of the building. There is an image of a bust of George Washington Carver. The caption to this reads, A bronze bust commemorates legendary scientist, agronomist, and philanthropist George Washington Carver at the National Monument near Diamond, Missouri. And finally, there is a hand drawing of the school that was done by George Washington Carver. It shows the school, the house next to it, and a shed out behind the house. The caption reads, A sketch by George Washington Carver of the school he attended in Neosho, Missouri. That was the article, Preservation of Neosho School Attended by George Washington Carver Gets National Grant. It was written by Claudette Riley, and this appeared in the Springfield News Leader newspaper in Springfield, Missouri, on June 13, 2023. My next reading is an obituary. The title is, William E. Spriggs, Economist Who Pushed for Racial Justice Dies at 68. It appeared at the New York Times, nytimes.com website. It was published on June 9, 2023, and written by Ben Castleman. William E. Spriggs, who in a four-decade career in economics sought to root out racial injustice in society and in his own profession, died on Tuesday, June 6, in Reston, Virginia. He was 68. The AFL-CIO, for which Dr. Spriggs had been chief economist for more than a decade, announced his death. His wife of 38 years, Jennifer Spriggs, said the cause was a stroke. One of the most prominent black economists of his generation, Dr. Spriggs served as an assistant secretary of labor in the Obama administration and held other public sector roles earlier in his career. But he is best known for his work outside of government as an outspoken and frequently quoted advocate for workers, especially black workers. In addition to his role at the AFL-CIO based in Washington, he was a professor at Howard University where he mentored a generation of black economists while pushing for change within a field dominated by white men. Bill was somebody who was deeply committed to the idea that we do economics because we have a social purpose. William A. Darity Jr., a Duke University economist and longtime friend, said in a phone interview, 
that this is not a discipline that should be deployed just for playing parlor games and that we should use the ideas that we develop from economics for the design of social policy that will make the lives of most people far better. Dr. Spriggs worked on varied issues including trade, education, the minimum wage, and social security. But the topic he came back to most frequently and spoke most passionately about was that of racial disparities in the labor market. Black Americans, he pointed out time and again, consistently experienced unemployment at double the rate of white people, a troubling fact that he argued got too little attention among economists. Economists have tried to rationalize this disparity by saying it merely reflects differences in skill levels. Dr. Spriggs wrote in an opinion article in the New York Times in 2021 before going on to dismiss that claim with a striking statistic. The unemployment rate for white high school dropouts is almost always below that of overall black unemployment. During the nationwide racial reckoning after the death of George Floyd in 2020, Dr. Spriggs wrote an open letter to his fellow economists that was sharply critical of the field's approach to race. Not just in its failure to recruit and retain black economists, which have been widely documented, but also in economic research. Modern economics has a deep and painful set of roots that too few economists acknowledge, Dr. Spriggs wrote. In the hands of far too many economists, it remains with the assumptions that African Americans are inferior until proven otherwise. Biden administration officials said they had discussed appointing Dr. Spriggs to senior economic policy roles as recently as this year. In the end, he remained on the outside, nudging the administration in public and private not to back off his commitment to ensuring a strong economic recovery. In recent months, he was a vocal critic of the Federal Reserve's aggressive efforts to tame inflation, which Dr. Spriggs warned would disproportionately hurt black workers. Bill was a towering figure in his field, a trailblazer who challenged the field's basic assumptions about racial discrimination in labor markets, pay equity, and worker empowerment. President Biden said in a statement on Wednesday. William Edward Spriggs was born on April 8, 1955 in Washington to Thurman and Julianne Henderson Spriggs. He was reared there and in Virginia. His father had served during World War II as a fighter pilot with the Tuskegee Airmen and went on to become a physics professor at Norfolk State University in Virginia and at Howard in Washington, both historically black institutions. His mother was also a veteran and became a public school teacher in Norfolk after earning her college degree while her son was in elementary school. I remember studying history together, Dr. Spriggs later recalled of his mother in a White House blog post written while he was at the Labor Department. She would check out children's books covering the topics she was learning about. Dr. Spriggs earned a bachelor's degree in economics and political science from Williams College in Massachusetts and attended graduate school at the University of Wisconsin where he earned a master's degree in 1979 and a doctorate in 1984, both in economics. While in graduate school, he served as co-president of the Graduate Student Teachers Union, helping to rebuild it after a largely unsuccessful strike the year before. Dr. Spriggs stood out at Wisconsin, and not only because he was the only black graduate student in the economics department, recall Lawrence Michelle, a classmate who was later president of the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, where Dr. Spriggs also worked for several years. Even as a graduate student, Dr. Michelle said, Mr. Spriggs was skeptical of the orthodox theories that his professors were teaching about how companies set workers' wages, theories that left no room for discrimination or other forces beyond supply and demand. And unlike most students, 
Mr. Spriggs wasn't interested in working for the top-ranked school where he could find a job. He wanted to work for a historically black institution as his father had. He got his wish, teaching first at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University in Greensboro, and then at Norfolk State University, where his father also worked, before taking a series of jobs in government and left-leaning think tanks. He returned to academia in 2005 when he joined Howard. He was chairman of its economic department from 2005 to 2009. In addition to his wife, whom he met in graduate school, his survivors include their son William and two sisters, Patricia Spriggs and Karen Baldwin. Dr. Spriggs had a shaping hand in the careers of dozens of younger economists. I would not be an economist today without Bill Spriggs, said Valerie Wilson, director of the Program on Race, Ethnicity, and the Economy at the Economic Policy Institute. Dr. Wilson was taking a break from graduate school and considering leaving the field altogether when one of her professors recommended her for a job working for Dr. Spriggs at the National Urban League. He helped restore her passion for economics by showing her an approach to the work that was less theoretical and more focused on the real world, she said. After two years at the Urban League, she told Dr. Spriggs that she was going back to graduate school. His response? We need you in the profession. That was the obituary. William E. Spriggs, economist who pushed for racial justice, dies at 68. It appeared in the New York Times, NYTimes.com website. It was written by Ben Castleman and published June 9, 2023. The next reading is a question-and-answer interview with an individual who has written a book about the family of rapper Tupac Shakur. This is from KirkusReviews.com. The title is The Saga of a Black Radical Activist Dynasty. It was written by Tom Beer and published May 30th, 2023. While rapper Tupac Shakur, capital T-U-P-A-C, capital S-H-A-K-U-R, who was killed in 1996 at the age of 25, is an iconic figure still widely remembered today. His family background and heritage are lesser known. Yet, at one time, the Shakur family was at the center of the black liberation movement of the 1960s and 70s, and Asata Shakur, Tupac's step-aunt, became legendary as a fugitive from justice who sought asylum in Cuba and wrote a deeply political autobiography. Journalist Santi Elijah Holly, capital H-O-L-L-E-Y, aims to expand our knowledge of this radical clan with his new book, An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. In a start review, our critic wrote, well-written and richly detailed, this book is a strong contribution to the literature of black militancy. Holly, 41, has written for The Guardian, the Atlantic, the New Republic, and The Economist. He spoke with us over Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Our conversation has been edited for length and clarity. To start with, who are the Shakurs? The Shakur family was not a family in the traditional sense, the way that we think about a biological family where everybody's related. They're more of a collective, a group of individuals who have all adopted this name for themselves. Some are part of the original family, but others either married in or just wanted to align themselves. They were serious. They were intelligent. They were also very loving and kind and welcoming. 
They were like the royalty of black liberation in the United States, and they worked in various parts of the movement, whether the Black Panthers or the Republic of New Africa or the Black Liberation Army. By taking the Shakur name, they were asserting their commitment to the cause. What drew you to their story? It's the same thing that will draw a lot of people. Tupac Shakur. I've been a long-time Tupac fan, but in recent years as a journalist reporting on social justice issues, I've learned about other Shakur family members. Mutulu Shakur, his stepfather, Afeni, his mother, Asata, and that made me come back to Tupac's lyrics and realize how much he thought about issues of police brutality, social injustice, and poverty. He didn't just come out of nowhere. I really wanted to show the family that he was raised in, the community that helped to raise him. Afeni and Asata were figures who really stand out in the book, especially in a very male-dominated movement. I didn't actually know much about Afeni going in, and I was surprised by how much she became the hero of the story. She had a rough background, and when she discovered the Black Panther Party, it was a place for her, she would say, to channel all of her rage, and she did it constructively, helping people. There's a lot of complaints, even at the time of the Black Panther Party being chauvinist. This was Asada's complaint, too. It is why she left, because there were a lot of clashing male egos. These powerful, megalomaniacal figures like Huey Newton and Elrich Cleaver. Afeni and Asada, I think, were celebrated because they weren't that. They proved to be great leaders. They were just in it for the work. They saw what needed to be done, and they wanted to do it. Afeni even acted as her own attorney during the Panther 21 trial in 1970, when members of the Black Panther Party were charged with a series of planned attacks. She had no previous legal experience, but it worked out pretty well. She was acquitted. All the people I talked to say the same thing, that Afeni was brilliant and forceful, but she was also very stubborn and she didn't accept anybody else doing things for her. She didn't like who was representing her interest in the trial. She was like, I'm going to do it myself. Why not? She just had to figure it out on the fly. So much of the Shakur story is told through police records and legal proceedings. They faced a lot of serious charges, including the murder of policemen. At the same time, we know they were targeted by misinformation and infiltration campaigns like the FBI's COINTELPRO. Was it difficult as a researcher and reporter to piece together what happened? You know, I never tried to be a historian where I'm stating things as facts. I'm stating the records of what the Shakurs were accused of, why the authorities pursued them. Those things are undebatable. Whether or not they did those things, whether or not they're guilty of certain things they're accused of, for the most part, I tried to stand back from that. I didn't want to accuse. I also didn't want to justify anybody's behavior. I'm presenting the stories that are there, what they were fighting for and what they were up against, and making a narrative from it, more of a documentary rather than a historian. You dedicate a chapter to the detox program at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, where Matulu Shakur helped establish a regimen to treat drug addicts with acupuncture. We think about these activists and organizers as advocating for self-defense in the community, or maybe the free breakfast for school children, but they were committed to community health care. This was one of those quieter things that they did. They saw a need, and any way they could address that need, without formal training and without permission, they would just teach themselves how to do these things, including how to use acupuncture to help people detox from heroin and methadone.
It was important to have that in the center of the book because the family came together in this beautiful moment and then influenced something that we still feel today. There are thousands of people around the world who use acupuncture to quit drugs and treat withdrawal symptoms. I wanted to show that this came from a radical little collective in the South Bronx, spearheaded by Mutulu Shakur, Tupac's stepfather. It's such an under-the-radar, uncelebrated thing that we still benefit from but don't really know where it came from, you know? By contrast, a lot has been written about Tupac's brief life. Is there anything you learned about him in researching the book that surprised you? I didn't know that he was chairman of the New African Panthers, which was a youth organization that wanted to carry on the work of the Black Panther Party. Tupac was very, very close to leaving music behind. He wasn't getting anywhere with it. He was going to leave it all behind and be a New African Panther leader. And at the last minute, he got a deal from the Oakland-based rap group Digital Underground to be a dancer and a roadie. So he took that just to get his foot in the door and then took off from there. But if things didn't work out for him, he was going to go in a whole different direction. But even to say it's a different direction isn't really accurate because he got into music thinking it would be a vehicle for him to get this message out to more people. He was still going to be an activist, but through his music. But then as his career progressed and he got sucked into the music industry, he started to have two minds. Social justice, but I need money to feed my family and I like the fame and the riches. Through his whole life, he was toggling between the two. Just a very contradictory and conflicted individual. That was the author interview titled The Saga of a Radical Black Activist Dynasty that was written by Tom Beer. He interviewed Santi Elijah Holly, who was the author of the book An American Family, The Shakuras and the Nation They Created. This interview appeared at the KirkusReviews.com website and was published May 30th, 2023. My next reading is from the West Coast. The title is The Untold Story of the Zoot Suit Riots, How Black L.A. Defended Mexican-Americans. It was published in the Los Angeles Times newspaper's latimes.com website on June 2, 2023, and was written by Gustavo Arellano. Farmers yelled their pitches for fruits and vegetables in English and Spanish. A hot sauce seller offered samples. The synth-heavy melodies of Duranguense swirled from someone's speaker. The Central Avenue Farmer's Market in South Los Angeles was popping. The mix of Black and Latino cultures here is beautiful, so we need to nourish their dreams, said Alejandro Corona, who runs the market for Sustainable Economic Enterprises of Los Angeles, a nonprofit. Every Thursday, vendors set up in the courtyard and nearby sidewalk of the Central Avenue Constituent Services Center. Corona showed me a collection of murals inside the courtyard with Black and Latino motifs, monarch butterflies, Anks, Aztec gods, and an ibis in red, black, and green, the colors of the Pan-African flag. But off to the side was another mural with a starker message. It honored the black-owned California Eagle and its publisher, Charlotta Bass. Her weekly newspaper, a caption noted, was a trumpet for the people that denounced inequality and injustices. Next to those words was an illustration of two young Mexican-American men on the ground, victims of the Zoot Suit riots. As Los Angeles observes the 80th anniversary of the unrest, which largely unfolded from June 3rd to June 8th, 1943, much will be said about wartime xenophobia and bigotry. 
how thousands of white servicemen and civilians assaulted anyone who wore the flamboyant zoot suits. Black, white, Filipino, but especially Mexican-American. Less known is the story told in the Bass Mural. On June 10, 1943, the Eagles' front-page headline screamed, Zoot Riot Jolts Watts. Next to it, a photo showed a young black man with a bloodied lip. Dispatches from across the city painted the ugliness of a week of mayhem. In an open letter to Mayor Fletcher Boron, Bass decried the riots as a white heat of lynch fury and blamed the city's dailies, including this paper, for kindling hatred over the previous year. Nothing in my experience, she wrote, has been so vicious, deliberate, or disruptive as the campaign of our city's metropolitan papers against Mexican-Americans. The Eagle's anger extended to its ads, the reason why I came to the Central Avenue Farmer's Market. The back page of the Eagle's June 10th edition featured a full-length spread for the People's Victory Market, a grocery co-op started by the Reverend Clayton D. Russell, one of the most prominent preachers in Black L.A. at the time. Russell's ad urged Black Angelinos to stand with Mexicans, who it said had been shamefully attacked by the press and police for far too long. Because we in the Negro community are more unified and have greater political power, it read, we must lead in the demand for full police protection of the Mexican community in Los Angeles. We must say to our great United Nations neighbor Mexico, saludos amigos, and by heaven we must mean it. The black community responded, and not just locally. Coverage of the riots appeared in the most prominent black newspapers in the country, the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier. Legendary poet Langston Hughes used his Defender column to describe Los Angeles as a city where Mexicans were shoved around like Negroes. NAACP head Walter White said zoot suitors were almost invariably the victims of poverty, proscription, and segregation. In the organization's magazine, The Crisis, Chester Himes ridiculed rioting servicemen as Nazi stormtroopers and Klan members while attacking the white supremacy in Los Angeles that made the riots possible. What could make the white people more happy than to see their uniformed sons sapping up some dark-skinned people, wrote Himes. Los Angeles was at last being made safe for white people, to do as they damn well please. Back home, Dorsey High's NAACP junior council passed a resolution urging unity with Mexican youth after their principal told students during an assembly that I don't want any of that low zoot suit stuff from the east side on this campus. The Mexican Youth Defense Committee and the junior council for the L.A. NAACP chapter created a coalition. Black, Mexican-American, white, and Jewish activists formed the Committee for American Unity to sponsor programs which will make race riots a thing of the past and that exploitation of minority groups will be erased from the community, according to the East Side Journal. Leaders of the black community really seemed to understand that they weren't safe just because they weren't the primary target, said Kevin Leonard, dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. He was among the first scholars to examine the black community's response to the riots. They connected it to black experiences in the South. As long as people were allowed to be scapegoated or turned into victims of violence, then no one was safe. That unity, however, was almost completely ignored in the popular memory of the Zoot Suit riots. It's non-existent in the lowrider cruises, galas, street festivals, and social media posts that portray the violence as a modern-day pogrom against Mexican-Americans. What's emphasized instead is a pachuco cool, Chicano style, 
Mexican resilience. If there's a mention of the black men who originated Zoot Suits and also suffered and fought back during the riots, it's rarely more than a shout-out. This history has become so erased that when Luis Alvarez published a history of the Zoot Suit in 2008, Chicano studies professors he knew threw a lot of static at the book's cover, which showed well-dressed Jamaican immigrants in Britain. They asked me, why would black people be on the cover of a book about the Zoot Suit riots, said the UC San Diego history professor. There's just an obscurity to this history that needs to be unraveled. The unity of the two long-neglected communities during trying times is a reminder of what we desperately need in Los Angeles, especially in the wake of last fall's L.A. City Hall tape leak. Ever since the world heard politicals blithely toss out racist language and scheme to increase Latino power at the expense of black power, many people in each community have understandably felt pessimistic that allyship can never happen again. But it is happening at the Central Avenue Farmer's Market, and it's the perfect place to see history repeat itself. The People's Victory Market operated from that location 80 years before. Mexican-Americans were overwhelmingly the victims in the Zoot Suit riots, but the mobs went after black men as well. The NAACP field office logged dozens of incidents. Joseph Nelson, 16, got dragged out of a car at Fifth and Main Streets and had his pants cut, Luis Jackson, 23, a shipyard worker, had an eye gouged out after being jumped at 3rd Street and Santa Fe Avenue. Two black teenagers wearing zoot suits had to seek refuge at the Pasadena police station from marauders. The riots reached their climax the night of June 7th, as an estimated 5,000 civilians swarmed into downtown Los Angeles. Servicemen barged into movie theaters and stripped off the zoot suits of anyone wearing them. At 12th Street and Central Avenue, rioters forced two teens to take off their offending clothes and burn the suits in front of them. South L.A. was next. Lauren Miller, a former Eagle editor who wrote at the time for another black-owned newspaper, the Los Angeles Sentinel, called Mayor Boron and let him know any push south wouldn't end well for the sailors. We were going to raise hell and see that anybody that came over in the Negro community looking around for any trouble was going to find plenty of trouble, Miller said in an interview decades later. If anybody came up 12th and Central, somebody was going to get killed, and I don't think it was going to be Negroes. Hundreds of Pachucos came from the east side to help their black peers. They loaned us their cars to use, Rudy Lavos told the Times in 1978. Servicemen were surprised. It was the first time anybody was organized to fight back. The ensuing brawl saw police officers join in. But any advance south stopped for the night. Two days later, rioters tried one final invasion of South L.A. when 150 sailors and Air Corps members hitched rides to Watts. Throughout the riots, black and Mexican Zooters had thrown rocks at Pacific Electric red cars heading to the neighborhood, packed with servicemen looking for pachucos. After ignoring, if not condoning, the riots, military brass had finally intervened and declared Los Angeles off-limits to military personnel. Thinking Watts was its own city, the service members marched through the streets with clubs, pipes, and bottles singing military tunes while shouting, Where are the zoot suitors? Before anything major happened, military police arrived and ordered the aspiring rioters back to their bases. Civilian police, meanwhile, arrested more than 20 black and Mexican-American teens for continuing to throw rocks at the red cars. There was an interracial aspect to the resistance from the very beginning, Alvarez said. Black and Mexican-American Angelinos were going to concerts together. They were traversing pool halls and backyard parties together. 
They were in relationships. They were supposed to be invisible and silent, but they were seen and heard. The public forgot this history, the professor argued, because the Chicano movement rehabilitated the Pachuco as an icon and figure of resistance against white supremacy and thus ignored their victims. In the black community, meanwhile, the story there is Malcolm Little turning in his zoot suit for another suit and becoming Malcolm X. Alvarez understands why the two narratives emerged and continue, but he stressed that teaching the zoot suit riots as a multicultural affair reminds us about the interconnection between Mexican-American history and African-American history. Those of us who care about those fields understand that we can't necessarily tell the story of one without the other. Outside the Central Avenue Constituent Services Center, there's a display mounted on a street pole that touts the area's history in English and Spanish. I ask L.A. Councilmember Curran Price, who met me the day I went to the farmer's market, if the display mentioned the riots. He read through it. Nothing. Nada. I know black folks were sucked into the riots, he said, and I knew that the reason why was because society wanted to attack a group of young men for how they dressed. Yesterday it was zoot suits. Today it's long white t-shirts and hoodies. Price told me that memory of the riots is stronger among Mexican-Americans because black Angelinos weren't the primary targets. The South L.A. politician nevertheless thinks about the riots every time he visits his headquarters at the service center, though. The mural with Charlotta Bass and the injured Pachuco stands right outside the doors to his office. It's a constant reminder of the challenges that black and brown people faced in our community, he said. There's a track record of good between blacks and Latinos. Yeah, there's been fights, but the record shows that if we're working together, we can be victorious. That's how Corona, the farmer's market manager, felt as well. The Mexican immigrant was familiar with zoot suits through the films of the Mexican comedian Tintan, who satirized Pachuco culture in a series of films in the 1940s and 1950s. But Corona, a native of Mexico's Jalisco state, had never heard of the riots until I told him. He researched them the night before we spoke. They used it as an excuse to beat up people who didn't have voto y voz, he said. No vote and no voice. He took particular inspiration in the People's Victory Market, which closed down in the early 1950s. It was great back then. People were advocating for food justice the way we are today. Traffic buzzed by. Vendors were beginning to break down their booths at the farmer's market. If you want to see good things today, Corona concluded, sometimes you have to look at the past to learn how to do them. There are some photographs that go along with this story. One shows a man who's naked and sitting cross-legged on a sidewalk. He's covered with the sport coat. Beside him is another man, fully clothed, who's stretched out on the sidewalk beside him. They are surrounded by about 40 people and policemen looking at them. The caption reads, Two youths, one stripped of all his clothes and the other badly beaten, fell victim to raging bands of policemen who scoured the streets in Los Angeles on June 7, 1943. The next photograph shows sailors, soldiers, and Marines walking down a sidewalk carrying clubs and pieces of wood. The caption reads, Gangs of American soldiers and Marines armed with sticks during the Zoot Suit Riots march around Watts on the night of June 9, 1943. 
And the last image is a photo of current-day Los Angeles. It shows a farmer's market and people walking up and down the sidewalk, carrying bags of produce and pushing shopping carts. The caption reads, People shop at the Central Avenue Farmer's Market in South Los Angeles. That was The Untold Story of the Zoot Suit Riots, How Black L.A. Defended Mexican Americans. It appeared at the latimes.com website, was written by Gustavo Arellano, and published June 2nd, 2023. The next story on today's program is about the African diaspora. It's from the New York Amsterdam News and its amsterdamnews.com website. The title is, United Nations Forum Will Define International Obligations to People of African Descent. It was written by Karen Carrillo and was published June 8, 2023. The week-long convening of the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent, PFPAD, brought 900 people to the United Nations New York headquarters. They arrived eager to add proposals about what needs to be done to enhance the lives of black people in various parts of the world. The week did not start out easy, though. Many black activists had traveled from across the continent and some from locations as far away as Australia, Ireland, and countries in Latin America. Yet they say they were aggravated by the fact they had to wait for hours to enter the UN. There was a three-hour-long line for UN entrance passes, which could have possibly have been arranged prior to the start of the conference. Once inside, however, activists joined nonprofit and governmental representatives to talk about the concept and possibility of reparations for African enslavement, the ideals of Pan-Africanism, and its suggestions for how to deal with past injustices and what to push forward for in the future. The racism and other difficulties people of African descent are facing as they migrate from war-torn or falling nations, the methods of collecting and distributing high-quality and timely employment, economic, age, geographic and economic statistics on black populations, and the practices communities can use to promote health and well-being while dealing with intergenerational trauma. Epsi Campbell Barr, the former vice president of Costa Rica, chairs the PFPAD. She confessed to a press roundtable that there's a lot of expectation from civil society around the world, but mostly from here, from this hemisphere, from Latin America, North America, and Canada regarding the permanent forum. Indices for black human rights remain low. Political participation is on the wane, and systemic racism remains an everyday reality throughout the hemisphere. Campbell Barr said that the calls for the extension of the International Decade for People of African Descent which was originally declared for the years 2015 through the end of 2024, or because the UN was not able to get full commitments about promoting wider recognition and the social and economic development of black communities from most countries. The COVID-19 pandemic also put a damper on programs meant to aid black people. One of the decade's main achievements, though, was the establishment of the Permanent Forum. We feel that in the second decade, because there is a larger demand from different organizations, we are going to have the political power to push our governments to do something for our communities, said Campbell Barr. She added that the new decade for people of African descent would start five years before the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs agenda, in 2030, will serve as an extra push to get governments to truly work for black communities. 
the permanent forum of people of African descent has the mandate to work to establish the Declaration of Human Rights of People of African Descent, Campbell Barr said. The final product will be a document that shows the UN's commitment to African descendants in the Americas and throughout the world. It will be the main important document and commitment of the UN to black people. That's why it was important to feature the input of civil society groups during the forum, Desiree Cormier Smith, the U.S. State Department's first ever special representative for racial equity and justice, told the Amsterdam News. The international decade, we championed the creation of it. We have been commemorating it under this administration, and we believe it is important, Cormier Smith said. The U.S. government has been widely criticized for not heralding the importance of the Durban Declaration and Program of Action, which was adopted 21 years ago at the World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. The World Conference Against Racism helped push the United Nations to create a decade for recognizing the global black diaspora. The problem the U.S. has with the DDPA, Cormier Smith said, is it singling out Israel and then some restrictions on free speech which are counter to our Constitution. She insisted that that doesn't mean the U.S. doesn't agree with the aims of the DDPA. Let me be clear on that. The Durban Declaration and Program of Action is meant to be a blueprint on how member states can work towards the elimination of racial discrimination, intolerance, and xenophobia. We agree with those aims. We are committed to those aims. We just don't agree with the DDPA as a policy. The United States did play a major role in the formatting of the Permanent Forum, Cormier Smith asserted. We championed the creation of the Permanent Forum as a part of that decade. We are a strong supporter of the creation of that forum. And we also strongly supported the participation, the robust participation of civil society in the forum as central to the forum. Not all member states are a fan of that. I want to make sure that that is on the record, that we are one of the loudest voices to ensure that civil society can be robustly included because we felt that was important to the credibility of the forum. You have to have the people who are closest to the pain to be a part of the solution because they have the best answers. They have the best solutions. Howard University professor Justin Hansford who also serves as an elected member of the Permanent Forum, explained that some of the recommendations and suggestions that activists and community organizations made will form part of the Permanent Forum's final conclusions and recommendations to the United Nations. That was the article, United Nations Forum Will Define International Obligations to People of African Descent. It was written by Karen Carrillo and published June 8, 2023, at the AmsterdamNews.com website. And I'm going to wrap up today's program with a book review. The title of the book is The Islands, written by Dion Irving. The book review was written by Victoria Zhuang, capital Z-H-U-A-N-G, and I found this book review at the Harvard Review Online. Its website is harvardreview.org. Jamaican-Canadian writer Dion Irving's first short story collection, The Islands, feels particularly timely as the world emerges from a global pandemic that turned everyone into islands of their own. The stories form a kind of archipelago of ten far-flung souls from the Jamaican diaspora, disparate yet kindred spirits. 
The islands has echoes of Jhumpa Lahiri's tour de force collection Unaccustomed Earth, with a more satirical post-colonial edge as well as a Raymond Carver-like bluntness. Following her debut novel, Quint, about real-life Canadian quintuplets who are put on display for tourists, Irving continues to explore themes of family, belonging, womanhood, and power, approaching them here through the lens of race and migration. Whether they're in Canada, London, Panama, Paris, or the U.S., her mostly female characters appear well-integrated. They bear the trappings of assimilation, clothes, mannerisms, jobs, marriages. But despite moving from one continent to another, and in some cases growing up as second-generation natives in their new land, Irving's protagonists are still psychologically in transit. A sense of arrival eludes them, just as their homelands, like so many former colonial states, have yet to reach a sense of closure after decolonization. But Irving's people also disturb their adoptive homelands with demands for acceptance. Many of them are stalled writers like Irving who don't fit into set boxes of identity. They seek to rewrite history in their own voices. There's the self-assured couple in Florida lives who watch their black millennial marriage run aground in their new tropical home when the husband, who was raised to prioritize black excellence in a certain vision of status, can't relate to his Jamaican wife's need for togetherness and community. The titular character in Shop Girl despises her parents for making her help out in the family's ethnic food shop while she tries reading books like Oliver Twist, but later wields her heritage as a bittersweet piece of cultural capital. In Weaving, Delroy, a washed-up boxer whose white ex-wife raises their daughter to reject everything about him, tries to deliver a birthday gift to his daughter, a stolen piglet, to share his Jamaican upbringing with her. But his plan goes horribly awry in a tale both funny and sad. Interspersed in these stories are white characters who, although they may lay claim to deeper roots, often feel out of place in these new worlds and ironically seek stability from foreigners. The women in The Cape, an American idea of fun, and The Gifts are used by white men as trophy wives or mistresses in deeply unsettling ways. They try to escape these roles, but in each case they feel trapped. A stay-at-home mother in some people who host an uncomfortable dinner party in upscale Montclair, New Jersey, finds sensitivity where she had least expected to in a well-meaning privileged white mother who runs the school PTA. In many of these stories, characters refer to the protagonist as Pickney, Jamaican patois for child, but the term is often used with ambiguity or irony. In all-inclusive, Canadian-born Anaya, Raised on a fusion diet of poutine and Escovich Fitch, hums a reggae tune while passing by her mother's bedroom. Anaya overhears her mother on the phone. All these Pinkney think they know home, but they all quasi-Jamaicans, she says, before laughing, in a way that Anaya knew was at her expense. Try as she might to fit in, Anaya doesn't pass the test. A celebrated white poet who takes her to Jamaica as his mistress is accepted as more Jamaican, Meanwhile, the staff at a luxury resort there sees her as a black American outsider, suggesting that yet another effect of colonialism is to appropriate even claims to identity from the displaced. Irving's voice has a fatalistic quality, narrating in the future tense that will happen to a character while events are unfolding, as though her protagonists are all caught in a common destiny. Later, when she remembers this time, she will see how pretty she was 
The narrator says in An American Idea Fund, describing a girl's seduction by a white Frenchman. As Patricia's trip unfolds in the moment, the narrator interjects several times with flash-forwards to her in the future, age 40, and seeing a therapist for help with the fallout of that relationship. This device feels at times a bit overplayed, with some of its predictions too condemning of Irving's intelligent characters to feel entirely plausible. Irving sounds a more optimistic note in the final story of the book, Walking Life, which is told in first-person present without any ominous foreshadowing. Can a person will a home into being? Call it forth, the narrator wonders, as she wanders lost and bereft of family connections through the rainy streets of London. The more improvisational feeling of this final story suggests the answer. Possibly, yes. That was a book review of the book The Islands. The Islands was written by Dion Irving. The book review was written by Victoria Zhuang, and it appeared at the harvardreview.org website and was published April 20th, 2023. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcast or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.